0: Okay, our text for today, our text for today is from the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 1. So please can you turn there now. And if you're using an electronic device to follow, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Well, before we start to read, for context's sake, I want to give a brief outline of the book. When we look at our Bible, which is neatly bound and arranged with chapter and verse, it's too easy to think that some bloke named Daniel just sat down and wrote his book in one go. Am I on? I Okay, it just sounded a bit different to me. In fact, this book was written over a period of about 70 years, starting in 605 BC, and it appears that Daniel began to write when he was just 15 years old. Imagine that. And that was during a particularly desperate period of Jewish history, which was called the Babylonian Captivity. Okay, so it was that. If you're any student of the Old Testament, you'll know that there's this circle of events that repeats over and over in the relationship between God and his chosen people. And it goes like this. One, Israel follows God's commands and is blessed by him. Two, Israel forgets God's commandments and is warned by him, usually by a prophet. Three, Israel doesn't listen, so God punishes them. For Israel repents, and God blesses them, and the cycle begins again. And if you look through the whole of the Old Testament narrative, you'll see that goes on and on until God finally loses his patience. We're looking at an example of number 3 here, God's punishment. And in this case, by allowing an enemy people, the Babylonians, to conquer Jerusalem and drag some of the Jews away into captivity. And this is the subject of verses 1 to 7. And in chapter 1, and and although it's not strictly part of today's sermon, I do want to read them so that we have a picture of the situation that Daniel is in as we go on to look at the rest. So let's do that now, verses 1 to 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years' training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So what we see described here is that Daniel and his mates have become part of a clever control strategy by Nebuchadnezzar. Instead of merely whipping and beating captive nations into submission, which always results in no end of bothersome rebellion and sabotage, he cunningly takes aside some of the cream of their youth and draws them bit by bit into Babylonian ways. And this means that as these young people come to an age where they will naturally become the leader of their people, they are already on the right page. And of course, that's the Babylonian page. And they will help to subdue their kinfolk. As we've just seen, the method involved changing their names, exposing them to the proper language, customs and food, and so on, as well as living in the king's palace. Now that must have been a very tempting proposition depending on your view of personal compromise. Option A, work as a slave doing hard labour for the Babylonians, enjoy lousy food and substandard housing, receive regular whippings and abuse. Or option B, live a cushy life in the palace, eat the same food as the king, get a proper education. Oh, by the way, you'll need some new gods for that, but no worries, you're as comfy as... But Daniel is not like that. Although he is participating in that system of control, he has very clear boundaries. So let's read the next section now, starting in verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. It seems to me that verse 8, the first verse in this section, is the key to the whole affair. And most especially this word, purposed. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. So we'll start by looking at the word purposed. What does it mean? Well, I happen to have an absolutely enormous Collins Dictionary. Imagine, a real book. And it says that to have a purpose means to have the fixed intention of doing something and being determined to see it through. It seems to me, then, that purpose in the, is the space in which aim is turned into action. We all have aims, but oftentimes they do not become anything concrete. For one reason or another, in my particular case, that chocolate can simply not be allowed to remain uneaten, they are never realized. But this is not the case when one purposes to do something. This is not a random thought or whim. Purpose is backed up by an unshakable internal conviction which powers the aim through to action and fights off any obstacles along the way. And this is why it's notable that Daniel purposed in his heart. A head purpose has little effect. For example, I know very well in my head that excessive chocolate consumption will rot my teeth and create a need for larger clothing. But that is not enough to stop me because, oh, chocolate tastes so good what I need is a much stronger motivation that will steal me to overcome my taste buds and that power can only come from the heart purpose of the heart or what we could also call perseverance is a very good thing for a Christian to have because we all encounter threats to our faith and temptations if we are to maintain our faith and triumph over temptation in the same way that Daniel does here then we will certainly need it. Moreover, it is the attitude of our heart which God values above all else, for it is there that the truth of our submission to him lies. Okay. Dave, I agree, but what is it exactly, and how does one get it? How can I be like Daniel? Well, I'll be honest, finding a practical answer to that had me scratching my head for a bit, but eventually I came up with this equation. Purpose equals X times C subscript E. I'm sure you all know this equation very well. No. I'm not a mathematician, so I'm kind of pleased I came up with this. (laughs) In order for us to make sense of this, we'll need to explain what our symbols mean. Firstly... What is X? Well, unfortunately, X is indefinable. If I try to think about where the purpose of my heart comes from, I cannot escape the fact that there is a mysterious element to it, one that I cannot define or control. But if I think about that as a Christian, then I am sure I can give it, him, in fact, a name, and that's the Holy Spirit. He is given to dwell in us at the moment of our salvation to be the still, small voice that whispers God's purposes to us. And these are the ones that, only, that really matter. The Holy Spirit also directs us towards the work that God has prepared for us. He empowers us to do that work and He reminds us too of the expectations that the Lord has for His people's behavior. So X here. Is the Holy Spirit. Secondly, what is this strange C subscript E thing? Well, that's my own invention. And I call it conviction gained by experience. One of the main ways that we gain purpose is by doing many small things that prove what we think. Let me extend my chocolate example. Now, I can tell you for a fact that I am never going to go cold turkey on chocolate no way uh-uh ain't ever gonna stop dead on that one if i did stop suddenly i know that my craving would very soon take my hands straight back to the top of the fridge where the chocolate lives however let's say that i cut my consumption down gradually okay say only one slab a day for the first week then one slab every other day for the next week, and then one slab every three days after that. If along the way I regularly weigh myself and measure my waist and see that the centimetres and the kilos are really coming off, well, then I'm going to see the thing through, aren't I? I have been convicted by my experience, not just up here, but, I mean, down here as well, and so I will persevere and stay the course. That's all very well for chocolate, but how do we practically gain conviction by experience in our Christian lives? Every believer lives in a constant tug of war between the flesh and the spirit. If I am not convicted that the way of the spirit is superior to the way of the flesh, then my fixed intention of doing something and being determined to see it through, remember that's a dictionary definition of purpose, My purpose will be lacking and I will take the easy route of the flesh. How are some of the ways I can avoid that? Psalm 34, 8 gives us this invitation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist David is saying, don't just take my word that the Lord is good. Taste. Put him in your mouth. See for yourself that he is so. Experience his goodness and grace and mercy and then you will know and be sure. But we still have that question, how do, I, how do I actually do that? Well, there are two ways that we can practically get to taste the Lord. Firstly, in prayer and secondly, through his word, the Bible. In prayer, we have been given a space in which to contemplate and digest the awesomeness of God as we praise and petition him. And we must not neglect the praise part. In the first instance, focusing only on your own need is not the appropriate way to address the one who has saved you from death by sacrificing himself. And secondly and most importantly, it is through heartfelt praise that we get a true sense of just who it is that we are talking to and even more amazingly, who is listening to us and acting for us. By prayer and in prayer we get to taste our Lord and Creator. The second place that we get to taste the Lord is through our Bibles. God's written revelation of Himself in our hands. Have you thought about that? The book that you're holding is not just something that somebody wrote down randomly. It's God's Word to us. Through diligent study of its pages we will learn just how patient and kind and gracious and loving he is. And thereby the true worth of following his ways despite all worldly opposition and the seductive call of our flesh. It contains the most potent source of conviction, the cross, and Jesus' blood shed on it for our sakes. You know that cross is the supreme proof that God is exactly who he says he is and that he cares deeply for us and he earnestly wants to restore our relationship with him. Our best example of hard purpose, the Lord Jesus, God himself became a man, lived amongst us and died a terrible death to take the punishment that should have been ours. If reading about these marvelous gifts does not gain us conviction by experience, then we are hollow folk indeed. So I hope it's obvious that if we skimp on prayer and study of the word, the purpose of our hearts will not be as strong as it should be. And we will find that we live a life of compromise rather than compliance. Let's move a little further into verse verse 8 now. We have covered the matters of resolve and the heart, but not that of defilement. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not Defile himself. What does that mean? Defile is not a word that we use very commonly today. It has a variety of meanings around making something foul or dirty. But it actually holds a much stronger meaning. Because there is dirt, like a stain. But then there is defiling, disgusting, corrupt dirt. Filth. And that is a sense we need to understand because that is how God sees sin. It defiles his perfect creation. is extremely offensive and repulsive to him. Daniel lived under a much more explicit set of heavenly rules than we do today because he lived under the law. God's law given to his people. And this created two problems for him in this scene. Firstly, He knew that the pagan food that he was being offered had most likely been offered to idols. And therefore to eat it effectively meant that he was joining in with that idol worship. That was a big no-no. Also it's likely that some of the items he was expected to eat were specifically prohibited under the law. And so to accept those kinds of food meant deliberately breaking it. And that was also a big no-no, in fact a huge defiling no-no. Now I suspect that for many of us, the possibility of losing that comfortable life by angering the king would have caused us to make some kind of internal excuse to wriggle around the prohibitions of law. You might be saying, well you know, it's, it's not such a big thing to eat that food. I know in my heart that idols are imaginary, if I can stay in this position, well, you know, I can, I can help my people. That sort of thing. But Daniel was not like that. He understood so well that sin is a matter of black and white. There aren't any grey areas in which to compromise. He knew that his actions would either please God or anger God. And so he made the right choice. As we read, he goes to his boss and instead of going at the matter head on, Cleverly proposes a test. The way of the law against the way of the pagan. How did that work out? At the end of ten days their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Ta-da! God's way wins again. Daniel's heart purpose, rooted in God's will, made into action, proved to be the best course. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us. Let's read the what happened next, but starting in verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, The chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. And thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. This text reminds us that the Lord blesses those who keep his commandments. Now, I want to be very careful here. I'm not proposing a prosperity doctrine at all. Keep the Ten Commandments and automatically become a multimillionaire. Tell all your friends that Jesus loves them to be rich. No. It's not like that. That's a lie. God does bless some of his people in that way, but not only in that way. His blessings are many and varied, but never arbitrary. No, he blesses us wisely and pointedly, always for our good and his glory and his purposes, always consistent with his promise to complete the good work that he has started in us. So his blessings, they may be very small. They may not immediately even be seen as blessings, but they are nonetheless real and they are always good. However, as marvelous and welcome such gifts may be, they should never become our principal motivation to serve and obey, to fulfill our mission to show the world the truth of the gospel. The real truth is that no matter how many blessings we may receive from the Lord during our lives here on earth, they cannot compare at all to the supreme marvel, which is salvation through Christ. The worth delivered to every believer by Almighty God, humbled himself to become a man and then completely and undeservedly took the punishment due to us that is beyond any worldly description of value and it's a blessing that doesn't ever end because it is eternal now with regard to the size of that eternal blessing one might say under the circumstances that we should be very content to sit quietly in some corner of heaven. But that's not what Jesus has brought for us. His blood makes us full members of his heavenly family. We will live with God. We will see him. We will speak to him. Actually, we will know him face to face as we have always wanted to. And thanks to Jesus, we have the guarantee of eternal life in a new world with new and perfect bodies that do not creak and groan like the ones we have now or are subject to chocolate. So there's a consequence. Given the enormity of what we have received through God's grace in Christ, it is only proper and fitting that despite anything that might happen to us, we should be bold to stand our ground for God, just like we see Daniel doing here. Let's end with a brief summary of what we've learned today. 1. Without real purpose in our hearts, we are unlikely to turn our aims into action, particularly in risky or difficult circumstances. And this is true for both worldly aims and for spiritual aims. 2. Spiritual purpose is grown by a combination of the Holy Spirit working in our lives and our own labours and prayer and study of scriptures. Three. The Lord blesses those who live according to his purpose. Fourthly. It is both God's desire and the appropriate response to our gracious salvation through Christ to act with God's purposes in our hearts. So. Where are you in your spiritual life today? Do you just have a bunch of nice but unrealized aims? Or, like Daniel, do you have real purpose? The thing is, (laughs) you know how to move from one to the other. But will you? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that through your Holy Spirit working in our hearts we would firstly gain a knowledge of the purpose you have for us and secondly that we would have the courage to act it out. Lord, if I'm honest, this is a very scary passage because I know what the world does to those who stand up for you but that hasn't changed your call and i do pray that we would be the people you have called us to be to do the work that you have called us to do which is to show us the need for salvation in christ that you have standards and they are unchanging